The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 46. Hi, I'm Lauren Mylan Bias, author of The Path Redefined, Getting to the Top on Your Own Terms. Listen to this awesome podcast and you'll likely get there even faster. It's the Read to Lead Podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. I think there is a cultural sort of fog of misinformation around the act of doodling and part of that involves uh, the foundational belief that it's not valuable. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. I'm so glad you decided to come back to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Each week, we sit down with a successful and inspiring author, and we'll talk about their latest book. And depending on their area of expertise, their thoughts on leadership, personal development, career, marketing, business, and entrepreneurship. And in this episode, we're going to chat with Sunny Brown. No relation to yours truly, though I would love to have her as a member of the family. Uh, She's the author of The Doodle Revolution, Unlock the Power to Think Differently. And in today's episode, she's going to share about the five doodler types, the payoffs for using doodling and drawing as tools to learn complex subjects, and some of the ways group doodling can impact teams and organizations, and a whole lot more. I want to tell you first, though, quickly about our sponsor, and that's Blinkist. Now, Blinkist creates these awesome business book summaries. You can check them out via the web app or on your mobile device and get the main insights and key thoughts from your favorite business books in just about 15 minutes. So think about those business books on your shelf that you've not been able to finish or maybe in some cases you haven't even started yet. Would being able to get through some of those in 15 minutes make life a little bit easier for you? I think so. And right now, Blinkist has a special deal just for you because you're a Read to Lead podcast listener. They're giving 20% off an annual subscription. Now, an annual subscription is only 50 bucks to begin with, so it's pretty cheap right out of the gate. But you can save 20% when you use the discount code, all one word, Read to Lead. Easy to remember, right? Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. That's B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist, enter read to lead one word at checkout and save 20% on an annual subscription to Blinkist. Sonny Brown was named one of the 100 most creative people in business and one of the 10 most creative people on Twitter by Fast Company Magazine. She is a consultant and international speaker, the co-author of Game Storming, and the leader of a global campaign for visual literacy. Her TED Talk on doodling has drawn more than a million views on TED.com. She is also the author of The Doodle Revolution, Unlock the Power to Think Differently, and we're thrilled to have her as our guest today, Sunny Brown. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. 
Thank you, Jeff Brown, my <laughs> brother from another mother. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I thought it would be good uh, to start off by defining the word doodle in part because you know it's gotten, as you have written, a, a bad rap in the past. And if you would compare and contrast for us, Sonny, the the various definitions over the centuries and uh, bring us up to speed with how you define the term today. Okay, I can certainly do that. There, and I, I think you may have watched my TED Talk where I actually went through the centuries, um, but I haven't done that homework in a while, so I'll <laughs> kind of, I'm just going to sort of wing it. But uh, I do remember there was, uh, of course, none of the definitions are flattering. When I first started doing the research around ultimately what is teaching visual language, I was looking for um, definitions of the word doodle because doodling is the most universally used um, application of visual language. So when I was doing that research, Search, I discovered that there was no flattering way to describe a doodle, mm. which is unfortunate because it's obviously a tool that that millions and throughout history, billions of people have used of, to various you know um, uh, purposes and applications. So uh, it, it means, uh, oh yeah, I remember now. I just re- I just had a flashback of rehearsing my TED talk. Okay, <laughs> it goes uh, to doodle officially means. <laughs> Wait, I'm about to do a speech. <laughs> Uh, it means to dawdle or to dilly dally. Uh, this is the 18th century to uh, monkey around, uh, to do nothing, to do something of little value, substance, or import. And then historically, it used to mean um, to make fun of others or to. Uh, oh, and also at one point, it meant a corrupt politician, meaning a person who essentially, uh, you know, usurped the public funds to do nothing on the job. So mm-hmm. it has never had uh, anything attractive about it, even though it's so uh, beautifully you know, valuable. <laughs> now, now today you define it exactly as, as what? Today I've redefined it and others are starting to redefine it. And that, and that really was the purpose of the revolution was to get other people to own it and to sort of come out, if you will. And now I define it as, which ultimately is what it actually is, which is the making of spontaneous marks. And I have a little caveat with your mind and your body in order to help yourself think. Because it, upon inspection of doodlers, that's in fact what is happening. Well, I want to spend a fair amount of time on this question you pose early in the book, why the revolution? In the book, Sonny offers five reasons why the doodle revolution has to exist and why revolutionaries, that's you and me, must find each other and learn from each other. Sonny, I know that number one is a big pet peeve of yours, and that's the fact that we aren't being taught visual language. (laughs) Yeah. Did you know that that was a pet peeve? (laughs) (laughs) I do hate that. Um, And I hate that. uh, I hate that for a lot of reasons. And I know hate is a strong word, but I really don't like it. Uh, And and, um, there because there's a lot of implications around not being taught visual language. But I want to go back for just a second because you said that you you referred to yourself as a revolutionary. So does that mean that you are a doodler? I am. I am. I, I think I'm probably a word doodler. Uh-huh. Uh, when we talk about the, we'll talk about those yeah. five categories a little later, but I think that's probably me as much as anything. Nice. Does that mean you read probably read the book and stuff? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> a lot of people, a lot of people interview me and they don't even have a copy of it. And I'm like, "Are you kidding me? I'm going to send you. Why didn't somebody send what? Because uh, it's going to get into it, you know." Yeah. But yeah, that's really cool. Okay, because I usually flag to see if someone is or is not um, like where they sort of orient around the topic. Mm. But so, um, 
yeah, the first one about us not being taught visual language, I understand there are a lot of problems in the world, okay? So it's not like I'm saying um, this this problem supersedes problems of poverty or, you know, income distribution or, you know, things of this nature. But I do think if you're if you're um, viewing it from an educational space, from a, the point of view of, under, of understanding how the mind works and how learning works and how people think, then the absence of teaching visual language is actually pretty detrimental if that if you have an end game of educating populations and it, it's such a natural thing as as we're young to to doodle but yes. it, it, it seems like uh, it we're it's kind of educated out of us as we get older. Is that a fair statement? Right. And actually, I noticed that you have Sir Ken Robinson in your um, signature or a quote of his somewhere mm-hmm. in your. Um, and uh, yes, and th- there's I have a lot of uh, resonance and sort of affinity with what he teaches, too, because some of our most valuable assets are in fact bled out of us as we move into institutions of ostensibly higher learning, which is the irony of um, <laughs> of that phrase, because you know things that you that are valuable when you're young and and should remain valuable throughout your adult life, like um, unstructured play, like uh, the application or the use of of of, of not even goal oriented visual language, and like um, sort of expressiveness that's uh, not necessarily obsessed with linguistic talent those things are part of childhood and part of youth and for some reason instead of harnessing them and moving them with us through as we grow we uh, kind of relinquish them and leave them behind and i think that's a big uh, uh, it's, it's a sacrifice it's not necessary and it's not valuable uh, now the number two reason for the revolution is that we have false beliefs about visual language yeah, there's so many, and I encountered, I too had those. I don't have them now, as far as I know. I'm sure if I investigated further, I'd be like, oh my God, I'm still prejudiced against, you know, whatever. <laughs> but uh, but as I was teaching, because I've taught uh, all over the world and um, had the opportunity to do that, and that's when all of those interesting perceptions started to come up in classrooms, of course, and, and workshops and sessions where I was uh, with, you know, on the ground with people who were trying to learn visual language. And that's when I was like, wow. There's this whole perception of it that is uh, doodling. Of course, there's a perception of that that's just kind of almost bastardized. Like mm-hmm. it's like if you're a doodler, you're like a you know redheaded stepchild or whatever the right. phrase is. You know, but, and then but then even if you're uh, using visual applied visual language, and even then um, the the belief is that it doesn't belong in certain environments. That you're not really paying attention. That it should be sort of um, relegated to art classes. I mean, it's just crazy what people perceive um, and it's and if it were valuable I would say yeah I mean keep that perception even if it were false like I'm very pragmatic I always want people to just have perceptions that uh, support what they are trying to accomplish so I don't even necessarily care if it's accurate like like if you need to believe you're six feet tall to play basketball and you're really five, five, like, I'm like, believe it, you know, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, uh, but the, but the, but the beliefs that we have around visual language are not helpful and they're not useful. And so that was also why I started to examine them and try to overturn a lot of them. You've hinted at number three, a little bit there, there is a significant negative impact from our ignorance of, of, of visual language. Can you talk about some of that negative impact that, that you refer to? Yeah, of course. Um, trying to solve a problem takes longer. There's no reason for that to take longer. It's a, you can accelerate problem solving using visual language. Um, also, creativity suffers when you can only access insights through language. And I am, listen, I'm a reader. I love books. Like, I th- obviously, you and I share that. <laughs> 
I, 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 I hope we, I hope we get to that, how important books have been in my life. And I studied linguistics as an undergraduate, so I love language, but I also love, um, the, the absence of language in the sense that it allows your brain to move into different modes. And so creativity can suffer when we fixate on approaching it through a linguistic lens, you know, um, also, uh, sharing and communicating. So like if you, you know how language can get people in trouble. So if you're sitting together, right, like you're sitting together explaining something to someone and they have a, a, a lot of vast other interpretations, but if you show them a picture, everybody suddenly is like, oh, this is the mental model that person has. So, so not having access to the creativity, to acceleration of problem solving, to communication, I mean, that's massive. You can't even calculate how big of an impact that is. The next one is one I think a lot of folks have have trouble wrapping their mind around. We've hinted mm-hmm. at it a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's the fact that visual language is native to every every single one of us. Yes, that is correct because humans navigate the world visually and spatially. That's actually one of our most primary fundamental uh, aptitudes. And what, you know, a lot of times I'll ask people, "Are you a visual thinker?" And they'll say, "Some people will say absolutely. Some people say I don't know. Some people say I think so." But the bottom line is, you can't. You know, you you have to be visually oriented in order to navigate in the world. And and I'm not even excluding blind people. Blind people also use visualizations uh, in their minds. And that all depends on when they lost sight and so forth. But anyway, the large majority of people do uh, need visual information to navigate, but also to um, to sort of map their understandings of things. And it's a muscle that can be further developed. So it's not like, you you know, if somebody has an aptitude for it, which, for example, Einstein had an aptitude for it, um, it you don't have to be born with that. You can cultivate it as well. And, and the last one, number five, is you say we can't afford not to learn it, that the world is changing too fast uh, for us to ignore it. What do you mean by that? Well, I just think that uh, if, you know, the complexity of what people are asked to understand is like, I mean, I don't even want to be at a at the helm of of a nation at this point, because it's like, can you imagine being Obama and trying to wrap your head around the geopolitics of <laughs> of the world and, or the market, you know, the economies? It's like the complexity with which we are uh, trying to understand things is uh, is astonishing. And so in my, from my point of view, you're going to need to apply every possible tool available to you neurologically and physiologically to tackle some of the challenges that we're facing. And one of those massive tools is the, the application of visual thinking. Well, Sonny, I know you get this a lot, uh, but how do you respond to adults who say, or anyone who's listening right now, I can't draw? Oh, they all, they all say that, first of all, <laughs> <laughs> including me. I say that as well. And, of course, I probably shouldn't because people roll their eyes. They're like, okay, you can't draw. Uh, but I started out not being able to draw a quote. Um, but this is – I was actually – this is my perfect response to this. I was watching a great documentary about an old punk band called Bikini Kill. I'm sure this is right on your target audience. Like, <laughs> I'm sure this is their favorite band. But, um, but this was the best quote. They said these are – this is a punk band, like a radical feminist punk band from the you know 80s, 90s. And what somebody's pointed out, some critic of them said, oh, you know, you ladies can't play your instruments, right? Mm. Like, you're terrible at the drums and the guitar. And the lead singer said, yeah, and, <laughs> you know, meaning that's not the point, right? That, and it's, uh, I say the same thing to people who say, I can't draw. I'm like, so? <laughs> it, like, it doesn't, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, which is ultimately, 
even the most clumsy use of mapping something or doodling something that allows you to understand is that is the point. The point has no- nothing to do with aesthetic ability or talent or uh, or uh, artistic, you know, integrity. It's it's like I don't care if you can't draw. I care because you care, but I don't care as a teacher. And I can't personally, honestly, draw myself. <laughs> so that's what I say to adults who can't draw. So what? Well, we uh, we referenced earlier that uh, doodling uh, in some of its definitions in centuries past, you know, all these negative connotations. Uh, we often think of that person who's doodling, say it's in a meeting or in, in a classroom setting, uh, that they're not paying attention. Right. Uh, but but you say that nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, there are. There was a, a, there's a oft quoted study about the retention rate of doodlers being approximately thirty percent higher than the retention rate of people who are are not doodling and they're just in fact sitting there. And or they're taking notes, uh, you know, traditional notes. And there is also a recent study that came out saying that people who take notes on their laptop also have no idea what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, in a nutshell, they're not really they don't remember what they hear and they're not uh, present. And that's the opposite of what's happening for doodlers. What's happening for doodlers is that they are physically present. They are um, cognitively present and they have elevated concentration and focus. And they have uh, they tend to have a lot of insights on the information that that they're either hearing internally or hearing externally. So that whole notion, I understand where the notion came from, of course, because if you look at a doodler from the outside, they look like they're just totally checked out. So it's not it's not surprising that that is a belief. But like many things, you know, more inspection is necessary to actually get to the truth, which is the doodlers are more present than their um, non-doodling counterparts. Uh, Sonny, what are some of the ways uh, you've witnessed uh, group doodling impact uh, teams and, and organizations? I mean, that's like a 40-hour conversation, <laughs> you know, because part of what my company does is that. So we have hundreds of sessions under under our belts where we train um, and teach and solve problems using group info doodles, what I call info doodling. And I love that work because uh, it's a shared experience and um, everybody is co-creating and everybody is contributing to other people's visualizations. And uh, it's like you start to get a group brain you know, and I don't mean like the dumb one where it's like group think where you're like, there are, you know, I mean, like <laughs> you get like an actual group awareness and that's awesome. And, mm. um, and, and I could give you case studies and so forth, but, you know, uh, ultimately what the, uh, a meta description of it is that we, someone will call us and ask us to solve a problem. It can be any type of problem in, in a company setting or a nonprofit setting. And we will design a series of thinking games that involve visualization to help them solve that problem. And it's really astonishing to see how that how well it works. Now, related to that, how exactly does doodling with others amplify uh, the interactions? Well, you know, like if you go back to your sort of uh, bar, like think of a bar, mm. right? Like, and this is my friend Dan Rome, his back of the napkin concept. Have mm. you read Back of the Napkin? I have, and we had uh, Dan on uh, recently to talk about his latest book, Show and Tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Dan's wonderful. I love him, but um. So, yeah, but that notion of people sitting together and my husband and I many, many times have been apparently sitting at bars and um, we will uh, we're getting older. So that's not as common in our life now. But uh, but we many times because he and I are so fundamentally different in so many ways. uh, There are many, many times when when I've had to say, okay, let's just map this situation because obviously (laughs) the the language is not going to get us there because it gets people fixate on language. And you can just like if, you know, attorneys, you can parse 
parse language forever ad nauseum you know but if you draw something it's like okay so this is the place where we're sitting you know this is the place from which we speak so when people doodle together um, and sh- and sort of uh, modify each other's imagery then the interaction is uh, is more um, accurate in terms of what you're trying to say but also people become more engaged frankly they have something to do with their hands and with their eyes and with each other and so it's just a it's like it's a little bit like dancing you know it can be when you get into the zone and so uh, I I think it's a huge uh, value add to be able to do it with someone else I see the development of a brand new TV show, Doodling with the Stars, in in your future. <laughs> Why haven't I thought of this? Oh my God, it's genius! Jeff, don't talk to anybody. You, you can have them. That that that's free. <laughs> well, one of my favorite quotes from the book is is the quote: "I believe we have significantly more influence over the direction and outcome of our lives than we realize." Mm-hmm. Uh, Sunny, how can how can doodling change what's possible, as you say in the book? Well, can I ask you, why is that one of your favorite quotes? (laughs) Well, I'm all about I believe statements. I have an an I believe or a worldview statement for the podcast. Oh, nice. I believe that intentional and consistent reading Mm -hmm. is key to success in business and in life. I teach a course called Podcaster Academy, and one of the things I tell students is you need to develop a worldview statement for your podcast, which is essentially the answer to the question why you do what you do. Uh huh. I love that you chose reading as one of your foundational beliefs because I do. I also. I mean, you know how powerful reading is. <laughs> but it's it's. I my husband always says because I was a huge reader when I was little, like so much a reader that my mom, like I wouldn't go to dinner and she would, you know, she would have. I wouldn't even hear people. They'd be like, "Sunny, you know, come <laughs> come do the most wonderful thing. Like there's a limo outside. You know, like if I was a kid." And I would be like, I just did not care. I would get totally lost. So I love reading and I love that you have a belief that drives your podcast. That's awesome. But to answer your question about, um, I believe we have significantly more influence. Um, I think that uh, at the time, because of course I wrote that probably that chapter a year ago but and i and i do make a a neurological case for it which i don't know if you read into the footnotes but um you know the the act of visualization whether it's tangible in front of you on paper or a whiteboard um, or whether it's in your using your visual cortex and your imaginative network in your mind um, is an incredibly powerful thing to do it's so Mm -hmm. powerful in fact that i don't think people have fully grasped how much you can change your reality based on what you visualize. Um, and and I, I look forward to the day when, when neurologists and cognitive behaviorists have been able to prove scientifically that you do in fact alter your reality based on what you see. <laughs> like <laughs> I know we know that people who, who do visualize and I list a lot of people in the book who have successfully, of course, athletes, that's a no brainer, you know, all athletes, yeah. if they're at a professional level, certainly uh, are using visualization, but, it, but it's, I can't believe how, how powerful it is. But, and so I, I, um, while I'm saying, I believe that I also think that it will no longer be a belief and it will actually be, be scientifically proven uh, pretty soon. Um, but I think that the the power of of embracing that as a belief is that if you find yourself in circumstances that are less than ideal, 
which is part of life, um, or you find yourself uh, sort of wanting something or longing for something or wanting to create something or just shift something in your life, then you actually do have more influence over that than you might understand. And one of the tools that you have to do that is the pure act of visualization, you know, mentally or externally. I definitely think externally is a great skill because it applies both uh, internal visualization and external. But uh, I I have some, there's so many examples in my life when I've done that, not knowing how how significant it was. (laughs) But it, it does change reality for people. So what type of doodler are you? I promised that we would get to this. Sunny asserts that there are five doodler types or what she calls your doodler DNA. Sunny, yeah. could you take a moment and describe for us uh, the unique qualities of each one of these five, starting with uh, word doodler? You're a word doodler. Yes. <laughs> what words do you doodle? Uh, well, it depends on, on what I'm, I'm listening to or thinking yeah. about at the moment, uh, yeah. but it's often a person's name or uh, you know the subject that I'm that I'm learning about. Um, uh-huh. Sometimes it'll be my own name. Uh-huh. <laughs> it varies. <laughs> you're like just reminding myself who I. Am. <laughs> Sometimes it'll be one of my dog's names. <laughs> so you're a name doodler. I think so. Yeah, that's like a subcategory of word doodler. Yeah, but those categories emerged also from observing doodlers around the world and talking to them. Um, and so, uh, there may be extra ones that I don't know, but those are the top five, which are word, abstract, nature and landscape, picture and people and faces. Mm. And, uh, John F. Kennedy was a word doodler. Just if that makes you feel good. It does. (laughs) (laughs) I read that in the book. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and, uh, oh, but I am an abstract doodler. I, my, my native doodle uh, when I am. when I actually look back at some notebooks that I have when I'm young, 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 uh, then the, it's a, a very interesting, it looks almost like a brain. It's like a cere- very cerebral looking abstract pattern. And I used to fill up whole pages with this thing. Mm. Uh, and I remember doing it at breakfast actually a lot. And my mom would be like, God, you know, like, <laughs> so you're either reading or doodling and not listening to anyone. <laughs> you know, like, you're in your own land. Uh, but so, so um, I know a lot of times people want, I, you know, when I talk to people in interviews, they want to know what, can I talk about what it means? I cannot talk about what it means to be <laughs> any of those things. But, uh, but nature and landscape doodlers, of course, are people who doodle leaves and flowers and mountains and mm. um, land and clouds and skyscapes and so forth. Picture doodlers is just a more broad category of people who doodle all kinds of objects. Sometimes it's related to what they're listening to. Sometimes it's not. Um, mm. People and faces. That's Reagan. I always think of Reagan and, and mm. uh, LBJ whenever I think of people and faces doodlers because they, and also um, the general. Oh, Eisenhower. Um, I, I think he was a a people mm. and faces doodler. But there are of course people who draw um, figures and faces. And then um, I refer to the doodle DNA as just the place where you're not. It's like an unguarded emergence of your native doodle, where no one is watching and you're not even watching yourself. Well, what are some of the lies that we tend to tell ourselves, Sonny, about the doodle? I think I think that it's a, a cultural lie more than an individual lie. I think individual doodlers know – they don't always know the, the significance of what they're doing, but they do know that it's rewarding. And so I don't think that the individual doodler who has embraced the fact that they are a doodler uh, is telling themselves lies. But I think there is a cultural sort of fog – 
of misinformation around the act of doodling. And part of that involves uh, the foundational belief that it's not valuable. And I think that if we could tip that one, that would be a huge shift because that to me, that's like the doorway. So if you say, oh my God, there's a native instinct that I have that in fact, millions of people have uh, that is coming out in a setting where there's some content or something I'm supposed to learn. And the if the lie is that's not uh, useful or valuable, it's really just me futzing around. Mm-hmm. If you flip that over and you say, oh, my God, it is useful, it is valuable, it's the opposite of futzing around, which means it's thinking and elevating thinking, then to me that's the sort of pivot point where you go, oh, my God, what else can I do with this? And that's where I'm trying to take people, you know. Excellent. Well, I want to ask you some questions not directly related to the book, but before we move into those, I wanted to ask if there's anything else about the book you'd like to make sure we walk away with. Yes, thank you. The, yes, the manifesto. Because I put the manifesto at the end. It's the Doodle Revolutionaries Manifesto, and it's basically like it's saying like here are the beliefs of the revolution, and here's why they matter. And you know, it's it's kind of it's it's a little tongue in cheek, like it's me being dramatic, um, but it's funny and um, it's and it's useful, and it sort of is a recruitment tool, right? Mm. So, and I've noticed that it's chapter six, and so like chapter five is this really intense chapter about the application of group info doodling in work environments and so i'm like people aren't getting to chapter six and like <laughs> they, won't, they won't read the whole chapter five so the manifesto is online too of course and you can sign it and so and i think that's a great part of the book because that's the part that says like we are here we are a tribe we have value you know mm. so that would be great for people to know about it page 221 i believe <laughs> awesome good work yes well, uh, public speaking, uh, Sonny, is a topic that's come up again and again on the show. We talked about it with Dan and, and, and several others. The idea that your success hinges on your ability to effectively share your ideas in public, in other words. Oh. And having you know done a TED Talk and, and uh, spoken internationally, I'd be curious to know what's your approach to public speaking? What's your goal, in other words, when you prepare a, a public talk? Well, God, I have two. Um, I mean, I have like a philosophical response to that and then i have a logistical response to that so you could have either one or both yeah let's do both (laughs) okay okay, cool because i because i would rather do the philosophical one honestly because people can find how to craft narratives online like you don't need me to tell people Mm. that um but uh this is what i think about public speaking what this this last part about your success hinges on it that makes me depressed because (laughs) because it for me and Dan and I have talked about this uh, a few times. For me, it is different for for me than it is for a lot of other authors that I speak to. I think that um, I, I have Dan is obviously very passionate about visual thinking. I am very passionate about visual thinking. And then you know Dan Pink, who has been kind enough to blur both of our books, mm-hmm. uh, Game Storming and Doodle Rev. Um, he is passionate about his subject matter. Um, but I've noticed that some speakers have a um, a longevity like where they it doesn't wear them out right so and i think they're probably extroverts and so and i'm actually an introvert and so public speaking for me um is it can often be a very draining experience so i started to recognize that because it's draining for two reasons one because i am introverted which means that i'm like uh i have to really muster up the um the uh, will to connect with such a large, because I've I have spoken in t- large groups like two thousand people and so forth. I have been actually trying to play with the idea that is is public speaking necessary? Because authors before me, it's not like Ernest Hemingway was a public speaker, 
you know, <laughs> right? So right. why, why can you tell me, I want to just hear from you about your perspective on why is it necessary to, I mean, can you leak content without, like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, sure. And know that I struggle with it too, because uh, public speaking is something that I've always feared uh-huh. and only something that I've begun to do fairly recently. I mean, I did a lot of uh, presentation type public speaking scenarios in companies that I work for, like inside the company, right. but only recently have begun doing that, you know, on my own as Jeff Brown, you know, this guy who does this, this, and this. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's a very scary uh, thing to me, yeah. but I'm realizing uh, very quickly that just by being one of the brave few or crazy few that, yeah. that do that or are willing to do that, it's it's a very, f- uh, very much a fast track to being viewed as, as a thought leader in your exactly. space. I know that's the, that's the irony of it. Cause, um, that is true. And I do remember when I first started, I would actually have straight up tunnel vision. There were a couple of times when I had to sit down because I was going to pass out. Mm. Um, and th- this is, uh, you know, seven, not eight, nine years ago. But uh, I think a lot of people assume that if you are uh, presenting as a, because you sound like a very confident speaker and I sound like a confident speaker. So I think that there's an idea that, you know, you never go through this phase, like the Valley of Death phase where you're like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) Uh, And there were definitely times. And then I went through, so I went through just, just straight up fear of speaking in front of others, period. Just Mm. like, you know, like, um, kind of like a nervous system fear, just basic stuff. And then I went through, oh, I'm not an expert fear which is like, who am I to present? You know what I mean? This is like, so this is so uh, uh, understandable and there's sort of stages of it. And then of course I got past both of those, which you also will too. If you haven't already, you will, Mm. um, because you'll recognize that the audience, they they are, most people, they want you to succeed and they want um, to learn something from you. And you of course can teach them something. So once you sort of stop orienting as an expert, if that, if that is part of maybe some of the concern Mm -hmm. and, and, and orient as a person of service to them, then that can ease some of the concern about, Oh, am I a fraud? A lot of people have, (laughs) you know, a lot of people have that. That's very uncommon. But then of course, for me, my, a desire to be of service to the audience went completely haywire. I was like, Oh my God, like I could teach them everything, you know? <laughs> and so that's where I'm working on like reining it in and not um, over preparing and um, sort of over functioning. And like, like I, I look, cause I really do care about the people in the room. Um, so I started to have to be like, okay, well don't care about them that much. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's a long winded way of saying maybe nothing about public speaking, <laughs> nothing that was useful. But my goal when I prepare a talk is to uh, connect with the person actually not intellectually, but emotionally. I care about yeah. that more than anything. Cause that's what people remember. They don't really remember facts about, you know, Oh, 30% of doodlers, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they just remember how they feel when you're with them. And yeah. so that's my goal is to give them an experience that lets them know that I, uh, am encouraging and inspiring and, and hoping to inspire them, you know, but that's a, that's a lofty goal too. So, you know, keep it small if you, that freaks you out. <laughs> well, I know uh, we both have the love of reading in common. And I was wondering yes. if maybe you could name a couple of books that you've read or are currently reading that have had a, a huge impact on you and, and maybe share how or, or why they impacted you as they did. Oh, man. I have like 
uh, 14 books on my bedside right now. <laughs> do you also, do you read like a bunch of books at the same time? I usually have three or four going at least at any one yeah. time. Are they always business books or? Um, uh, probably about 95% of the time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Interesting. So not, not fiction. Uh, I do fiction, but just very, maybe like one fiction book a year. And that's about wow. it. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. Did you ever read fiction? Uh, as a young boy, uh, yeah. I did. And then through high school and college, uh, reading got turned into somewhere along the way, a chore. It became homework. Oh. And so oh, that hurts my heart. Uh, I, I just didn't read for probably a decade and a half much of anything, you know, from the time I was in my late uh, mid to late teens to, to early, early 30s. It was kind of uh, like a burden. Yeah, it felt like a burden. And I had a had a, a, a leader at the company I worked for in my early 30s who who brought business books into the workplace and we read them as a staff together. And that's, that's where so my awesome. love for reading business books specifically began uh -huh. and rekindled my love for reading in general. Beautiful. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, he mm. had, they have a great in the, I don't know if you've been to the Zappos headquarters. Um, why would you just fly? <laughs> <laughs> but people like go and tour and they have this awesome business book section right when you walk in and any, anyone on earth can just have books. You can take 12, you can take 40, you can take whatever you want and the, all the employees get them. And it's, it's just like a, such a cool it's such a cool thing to offer people uh, leadership lessons, you know, and, and inside of the culture, you know, mm -hmm. and also we have a library outside of our house. Actually, we just put it up. It's called a little free library and you oh. just put books in there and people put books. It's like a community builder. Um, so I'm glad that you had a environment that, that nurtured that. Cause it'd be so tragic if you stopped reading, <laughs> like, you know, but so a couple books I'm reading right now, I'm reading uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography because uh, we're going to South Africa in July. Mm. And I didn't want to have um, I didn't want to be an ignorant person. Like, <laughs> like, oh, well, did anything interesting happen here recently? You know, like, God, you know, uh, and I, of course, I knew a little bit about apartheid, but I was like, it's just irrelevant. It's a big history to mm. try to take in. So that's awesome because, of course. Um, whenever I feel like I'm, my life is hard. I'm like, I read Nelson Mandela's book. <laughs> and then I'm like, whatever, boo-hoo, your life is so... <laughs> First world problems. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and then, uh, oh, so that's one. And then a couple books. Oh, and I do read, actually, I read a ton of fiction because it's so easy. See, that, that's why I'm impressed that you read business books all the time because I do have, obviously, a lot of... Uh, brain science books and a lot of learning books, a lot of business books, mm -hmm. but they're they're You have to learn like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like sometimes I don't want to learn. I want right. to be entertained. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yes. So that's why I'm like, good for you, Jeff. You're such a smarty pants. Um, so, okay. So that one. And then uh, let me think I'm reading this other book called smile at fear, which is mm. about it's, it's, it's like leadership lessons from a Buddhist perspective. Mm. And it's, it's amazing because it's, it, it, it's like most of the time people say, oh, they tell you how to work through fear or they tell you how to, you know, it could be fear of public speaking or they tell you how to sort of uh, look away or ignore it or there's other strategies for dealing with fear. And this one tells you to smile at it, which I think is amazing, <laughs> you know, so that's great. And it's a short, really powerful book. So I do read a lot of books about um, sort of uh, personal growth and philosophical 
I'm a, I'm a big philosopher, Jeff. <laughs> I'm picking up on that. <laughs> well, the book's been out for a few months now. Uh, mm-hmm. What's next for you? What projects are you uh, currently working on, Sonny, that you're excited about and can share? Well, I called my agent yesterday or a couple of days ago and I was like, hey, so when should I start writing another book? Right. Like, <laughs> Like what's appropriate Um, because there's a period of time after where you should just take a break. And um, then, of course, you are you're responsible for sort of marketing and selling the book um, and the messages, which is how I look at it. But uh, but I have I do have another project called the Untangle Project. And um, I think it may I think it will probably be a book that targets creatives and teaches them how to harness uh, the the incredible gift that is creativity mm. while also learning how to um, take good care of themselves because I've noticed that there's a relationship between creativity and self-destruction and uh, in, 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 in uh, whether that's right or wrong that sort of seems to be uh, a belief. Apparently, I like to find beliefs and then destroy them, <laughs> like false beliefs, <laughs> you know. And so, I was thinking about t- creating a, a like sort of. Have you read the book, The War of Art? I have. Yes, yes. Stephen Pressfield. Love this book, and Pressfield is. Uh, I, I mean, it's like when that book came out of Pressfield, it, it really came through him. Mm. And um, and the, I think the Untangle Project. I I think the format of it would be similar to the War of Art. So it would be just like here is some you know wisdom across the ages of, of how to harness creativity to hold it to contain it while not letting it sort of uh take you on a ride. You know, so that's kind of intriguing. Well, it has been a delight to have you on the show. You're somebody who I've I've wanted to have on for quite some time. So thank you for for taking time out of your busy day, Sonny, to to be with us and sharing with us all about the Doodle Revolution. We really appreciate it. Of course, Jeff. I'm so so glad that we're related in some way. (laughs) (laughs) I encourage you to consider networking with Sonny. And one of the best ways to do that is to reach out to her on Twitter. She is simply at Sunny Brown on Twitter. That's S-U-N-N-I-B-R-O-W-N, at Sunny Brown on Twitter. And the Read to Lead podcast, remember, makes for a great conversation starter. Anything and everything you might want to refer back to from today's episode, links, resources we talked about, Sunny's website, her book, can all be found on the special page created just for this episode. And you can find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 046 for episode 46. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 046. Don't forget to save 20% on an annual subscription to Blinkist, readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist. Use the discount code READTOLEAD, all one word, at checkout. And lastly, if you're one of those holdouts who hasn't yet rated the podcast, I hope you'll do that very, very soon. It helps get the podcast noticed and makes it easier to find. And if you feel it worthy of a five-star rating and review, I'll even be sure to mention you by name as a way to say thanks in an upcoming episode. To rate and review the podcast in iTunes, just visit readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes. To rate and review in Stitcher, read to leadpodcast.com slash Stitcher. Well, that's going to do it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com and chat with other members at facebook.com slash readtoleadnation. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead.
can it be that I love carved out of caring fashioned by fate could suffer so hard from the games played much too often but making mistakes is a part of life's imperfections born of the years is it so wrong to be human after all drawn into the stream Bye-bye. millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.